Well, if you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn with me in it to Genesis chapter 1 this morning. Genesis chapter 1, very first book of the Bible. And let me just tell you from the outset that this is this sermon's probably going to feel a little different than what normal sermons feel like uh, on a week-to-week basis here at City Church. <clears throat> a few weeks ago, I caught a documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. Any of you guys see that? seen that, The Social Dilemma, a few of you? The documentary interviews former high-level executives with Google and Pinterest and Facebook and others regarding you know, the rise of social media and some of the dangerous effects that it has on our culture. Now look, you know, understand something. I am not uh, a person who's afraid of technology. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe that social media is all bad. That's, that's not where I'm coming from here. However, what was fascinating about the documentary is to hear these former high-level uh, social media executives talk about how social media is increasingly shaping and distorting uh, the way we see the world and how we live in it. It's really fascinating, and frankly, I think it would be, I think you should watch it. I think it'd be a, a great assignment for you this afternoon or this week as part of the series that we're in that we launched last week called Let My People Think. Because what we're talking about in this series is the importance about thinking about the world in a way that is consistent with reality. And the term that we used for that last week is the world, excuse me, is the word worldview. And we, we defined worldview this way, that a worldview provides a model of the world which governs your daily decisions and actions. In other words, it's the way you think about life, the way you view reality, the ideas that you have about the world that govern the way that you live. And everyone, you know, everyone has a worldview. I mean, everybody does. Whether it's a biblical worldview or not, everyone has a worldview. But as I said last week, my concern as a pastor is that many Christ followers not only don't have a biblical worldview, but also don't recognize the ideas that are driving our lives and our culture nor do they understand the power of those ideas. And Christ followers need to be able to think biblically about the ideas that are driving social change today. Let me give you a couple of examples. For instance, here's, here's an idea that is driving social change in our culture. <clears throat> and let me ask you, what do you think about that? Is gender malleable? Is gender malleable? In other words, let's say that you're a parent, let's say you have an eight-year-old son. And let's say that the school that your eight-year-old son attends calls you in and tells you that your son has said on a few occasions that he feels more like a girl than a boy. Should you allow your eight-year-old son to change his gender? And also, should a parent be forced forced to honor their eight-year-old child's wishes to change their gender? Is gender malleable? Here's another word. Uh, here's another idea in our world today. Is the world really just divided into two groups, oppressors and the oppressed? That's an idea that the best-selling book by Robin DiAngelo, White Fragility, arg- argues. That's one that she proposes. Is the world really just divided into two groups, oppressors and the oppressed? Here's another one. Is knowledge really just a social construct? Is there anything that we can know that we can say that we really know for sure, or is it all just a social construct, something made up uh, by majority races and ethnicities uh, in our world. See, all of these ideas and more have broken into the cultural mainstream and are driving social change now at a bewildering pace. And even though you may not be familiar with terms like gender theory or critical theory or intersectionality, for instance, those ideas will filter down to you and are filtering down to you. And if you're a parent, 
They will filter down to your children through their schools, the media, and the culture at large. And Christ followers now, perhaps more than ever before, need a biblical worldview through which you can evaluate all of those ideas and more. And so the purpose behind this series, Let My People Think, is to give you seven basic elements of a biblical worldview. The first element of a biblical worldview we talked about last week, and that is that God is. In other words, that he is ultimate reality. God defines reality. He's at the center of reality. You don't define reality. You don't name your reality, as some would say today. God is the one who defines reality. Today, I want to talk about the second element of a biblical worldview, and that is that God creates. God is, he's at the center of reality, God creates. He created the universe uh, that we live in. And the Bible doesn't waste any time getting to this point. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You're probably familiar with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless, and empty darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit Spirit of God was hovering over the water. Skip down now to, to verse 31, if you would. God saw, verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And what's in between verse 1 and verse 31, as many of you know, are the six days of creation. And God said, let there be light. God said, let there be. So that's the pattern that runs all six days throughout the six days of creation. Now, As I said, the Bible doesn't waste any time in getting to this point that God creates. And one of the things that you have to understand is that from the very beginning to the very end, the Bible is a comprehensive master story that explains the world that we live in. And it's a story that is as vast as the universe and is so detailed to include every atom and molecule of creation. Nothing that exists does so outside of God's sovereignty and intention. But just as quickly as the Bible gets to this point that God creates, anyone who reads Genesis 1 is just as quickly thrown into controversy from both inside and outside of Christianity over this idea that God creates. Now, from outside Christianity, uh, the dominant philosophy of our culture, postmodernism, rejects outright the idea that there is any such thing as a master story that explains the world that we live in. If you believe, they would say, in such a master story, you are part of an oppressor group who is using your faith to victimize others. That's, that's sort of the prominent idea today in postmodern culture. From inside Christianity, though, and this is really where I'm going to spend my time this morning, so on this controversy inside Christianity. From inside Christianity, Christianity, the controversy over Genesis 1 surrounds whether you must believe the details of the account of creation and that they happened exactly as they are written in Genesis 1. In other words, here's the, here's the question. Here's the, here's the controversial question. Do you have to believe that God created the world in six 24-hour days? That's the controversy. And some would, some would say, yes, absolutely, you have to believe that. And that is a view known as young earth creationism. It's called young earth creationism because if the world was created in six 24-hour days, the earth has to be much younger than scientific data suggests. And young earth creationists see Genesis 1 as, the, as the, really the only alternative narrative to the theory of naturalistic evolution. 
Now, other people would say, they'd say, no, Genesis 1 isn't describing six 24-hour days. It could be describing much longer periods of time over which God created the earth, and, and the earth could be much older than young earth creationists believe. And these people who believe this are called, well, you can imagine, they're called old earth creationists. And there are a number of different variations of old earth creationism. But look, if it were just a disagreement over, you know, how, you know just a little internal disagreement over how to interpret Genesis 1, there really wouldn't be such a, such a big controversy. Just kind of two schools of thought about the truth that God creates. But in recent history, some have turned young earth creationism into a litmus test uh, for orthodoxy. In other words, they would say, if you don't believe that the earth was created in six 24-hour days, you cannot have a high view of the Bible. You've capitulated to the theory of evolution. And some would even say, you can't be a Christian if you don't believe that. Now look, it, you, know, you may be a person who believes that the earth was created in six 24-hour days. And, and if so, I don't have any interest this morning in trying to convince you that you're wrong. There's a lot to be said for the young earth uh, view. Let's acknowledge together that, that creating the universe in, in six 24-hour days is absolutely possible uh, for God. And when we all get to heaven, we, we might find that's, that's exactly uh, how he did it. Nothing wrong at all with holding a young earth view of creation. The problem is this. When we insist on a young earth view of creation as a litmus test for orthodoxy, we do two things. Number one, we create an unnecessary conflict between science and the Bible. And number two, and I, I have seen this more times than I care to remember over the years, we set our kids up to reject Christianity when they're taught in high school and in college that the earth can't possibly be that young. And so because of that, they conclude the Bible is wrong. It's often what they're told in those classes. It's a tragic mistake for us to set our kids up like that because if the Bible is wrong, then they, then they conclude Christianity can't be true and they just reject Christianity outright. It's a tragic mistake that we make. It's very important this morning as we talk about this second element of a biblical worldview that God creates, that he created the universe that we live in. It's very important for some of you to hear today that you do not have to hold to a young earth a view of creation to believe that God created the universe, to hold to a biblical worldview. And I know that that's controversial to some of you, and some of you may be getting ready to stone me right now because someone somewhere has told you that if anybody ever says that, that you should doubt their commitment to the inerrancy of the Bible. But let me quickly tell you that there are many well-known pastors and, and biblical scholars who do not, or maybe did not while they were alive, fall into the young earth camp. And I'm going to give you the names of some of them just so that in case you think you need to stone me, that I'm in good company, that you may know that you will know that you need to stone those people too. Here's the names of some of them. Some of these names you may recognize, some you may not, but these are all really very well-known uh, scholars and pastors over the years. John Ankerberg, uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, uh, Pastor John Piper, 
uh, Pastor Tim Keller, Chuck Colson, Dr. Gleason Archer, Dr. John Salehammer, James Montgomery Boyce, Dr. William Lane Craig, just to name a few. There are many, many more good scholars and pastors who have a high view of the Bible who don't hold, who don't happen to hold to a young earth view. And so hear me this morning, the answer to the question, do you have to believe that God created the world in six 24-hour days? The answer to that question is unequivocally no. No. You do not have to believe that. Now, listen, again, God may well have created the universe in six 24-hour days. But if Genesis 1 isn't a scientific account of the creation, what might it be? What are we to to make of Genesis chapter 1? And I want to say it this way. It is possible that Genesis 1 is not a historical account of how God created, but instead a literary device to convey that God created. Right? So let me say it again. It's possible that Genesis 1 is not a historical account of how God created, but instead a literary device to convey that God created. And I, I, know, I know I need to unpack that. And this is where, for the next few minutes, it may feel like this may feel a little bit more like a, like a classroom lecture. I apologize for that. Uh, I'll try to make it interesting for you, though, here. When you interpret any piece of literature, whether it's the Bible, the Constitution, a newspaper, whatever, when you interpret any piece of literature, there, there are some important questions that you have to answer about the particular piece of literature. I'll mention two of those that I think are relevant to Genesis chapter 1. One of the questions that you have to ask is, what kind of literature is this. Because the kind of literature it is affects how you interpret it, doesn't it? Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, Some of you who are believers will recognize this Justin Bieber, uh, the lyrics to this Justin Bieber song. He says, tell me what you like, yeah, tell me what you don't. I could be your Buzz Lightyear, fly across the globe. That's from his song, Boyfriend. Uh, Now those of you who are Bieber fans, How many of you think that he is saying that he can really become Buzz Lightyear and fly across the globe? Nobody. You you don't think that, right? I mean, you you understand it's this is this is kind of poetic language. He's using metaphors and similes and you know figures of speech to try to convey a particular message. Now contrast that with this. Just the other day, ESPN.com wrote this. Here was the title of one of their articles. LeBron James of Los Angeles Lakers claims fourth NBA Finals MVP. Now, I would suggest that you interpret that blog post very differently than you do the lyrics of a Justin Bieber song, don't you? Why? Why? Well, because, as I said, one is, one is poetic. The other is just a straightforward news account of something that happened in history, albeit recent history, just a few days ago. Well, see, when you read the Bible, you open it up, and there are all kinds of, there's, there's, there's a number of different kinds of literature in it. There are songs that have lyrics to them there, uh, that are much, prof- much more prof- profound than Justin Bieber's lyrics. There is uh, wisdom literature. There's prophetic literature. And then there are also historical accounts. Like, for instance, if you were to open up the Gospel of Luke, the very first thing that Luke says is that uh, this, he, says, he says this is an orderly account of Jesus' life. In other words, he's saying, he's saying it's a, 
It's called a historical narrative, much like the ESPN.com story about LeBron James. It's just a record. This is a historical record of a straightforward account of something that happened in, in history. And for the most part, when you, when you read the Bible, you can tell the difference between a straightforward historical account and say something that's, that's intended to be more uh, creative. So for instance, when you, when you read the Psalms, they're very creative. They use, they use patterns and, and parallelisms and, and figures of speech to convey truth in a creative way that historical accounts don't use, okay? So you can usually tell the difference. But when you read Genesis 1, here's the thing. It's not clear that you are reading a straightforward historical account as young earth creationists would say that it clearly is. It's not really that clear because if you read Genesis 1, you'll notice that there are repetitions and patterns in it that you don't normally find in other straightforward historical accounts of the Bible, right? So there's the pattern of, and God said, let there be, and then there was morning and there was evening and it was the whatever day, right? So there's these patterns and, and repetitions in it that don't sound like that don't sound like just a straightforward historical account. So it's possible that it's not intended to be a historical account of exactly how God created the universe, but instead a creative literary device to convey that God created the universe. I've heard it referred to uh, before as uh, Genesis 1 referred to as exalted prose narrative. Uh, Some say that it's a a Genesis 1 was a song. Others say that it was a a teaching device, okay? The, The thing is that you have to understand that the first question you have to ask is what kind of literature is Genesis chapter 1? And it's not, it's not absolutely clear that it's a straightforward historical account. Now, another question that I want to mention that you have to answer in any kind of literature is who was the original audience? And this is really something that's very critical when you understand, when you read the Bible. Is who was the original audience? Like who was this written to first, right? It wasn't written to us first. It was written to a specific audience first. And I realize that, again, I realize this, this may be sounding kind of like a classroom lecture, so let me explain who the original audience was through the story that the Bible tells about the beginning of the nation of Israel, and I'll do this in a very condensed way. One day, way back in ancient Mesopotamia, in the, in the cradle of human civilization, long before Genesis 1 was ever written, guy by the name of Abraham is killing time on a long, hot day. I'm assuming it was a long, hot day. I don't know that for sure, but I'm just assuming that. The thing you have to understand about Abraham is that uh, Abraham came from a long line of idolaters, worshipers of pagan gods. And out of, blue, out of the blue, on that long hot day, Abraham hears God's voice speak to him and God says to him, he says, he says go to the land that I'm gonna uh, lead you to and I will make you a great nation uh, out of your descendants. In other words, they become, this becomes the nation of Israel. So he says, he says, go to this land I'm going to send you to, and I'll make a great nation out of your descendants. And what's amazing is that, I mean, almost immediately, Abraham picks up, he, he takes his wife and his cattle and his servants, and, and he strikes out toward this land that God was sending him to. But lots of time passes, and Abraham and his wife grow very old, and they don't have any kids yet, And Abraham is wondering, did I just have a heat stroke and imagined that God uh, was speaking to me? I mean, how do you create a great nation out of 
uh, my descendants when I don't have any descendants. But lo and behold, in their old age, Abraham and his wife miraculously have a boy whom they named Isaac. One day, probably another long, hot day, Isaac was a little older, and God says to Abraham, take Isaac, your only son, and go up the mountain and sacrifice him. In other words, cut his throat, burn his body on a pile of wood as a sacrifice to me. What? Say what? I mean, that's incredibly barbaric. It's a child sacrifice that God is calling for. But here's what's really fascinating. Abraham does it without question. He goes, he gets Isaac, heads up the mountain. Abraham's carrying the, he's carrying the fire and, and he's carrying the knife. But Isaac is carrying the wood that his very body is going to be sacrificed on. And in fact, Isaac gets suspicious. He's like, uh, 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 Dad, I, I, I mean, I, I, okay, I've got the wood and, and you got the fire and the knife, but I'm not seeing the lamb that we're going to sacrifice. What's up with that? And you, you wonder if Isaac is picking up the vibe that something isn't kosher here. See what I did there? Kosher. Anyway, here's the question. Here, here's the question. Why would Abraham just do that? Like, what's up with that? Why isn't he shocked at the barbarity of this command from God? Why isn't he like, you want me to do what? Are you crazy? But he doesn't ask. Why doesn't he ask? And it's because to Abraham, this is how the gods that he was raised to worship work. They were cruel The gods that he was raised to worship were demanding and they were violent and they were brutal and they demanded child sacrifices to appease their anger. Ancient cultures long before Israel was formed, you see, had their own gods and their own stories of creation. For instance, Here's the creation story of uh, the ancient uh, of ancient Babylonians. It goes like this, and this is I'm, you know this is paraphrased and, and condensed, uh, but I'll, I'll, I want to read this to you. I think it's, think, think you'll be interested in this. Uh, this was the creation story of the ancient Babylonians. The world was born from the freshwater god Apsu and the saltwater goddess Tiamat. From their union, other gods are born, but these god children are noisy, and their parents are not getting any sleep. And this enrages the father, Epsu, who decides to kill his children. But before he can carry out his plan, his children discover his plot and kill him instead. Their mother, Tiamat, is furious that her children have killed her husband and she declares war against them. Terrified of their murderous parent, the divine children choose a young warrior god, Marduk, to lead them against Tiamat and her few loyal offspring. He agrees, but only if he can be named, Marduk agrees, but only if he can be named king of the gods, if he succeeds. A bloody battle ensues, and Marduk kills their mother, Tiamat, dismembers her body, and fashions the heavens from her body parts. In a moment of whimsy, Marduk then decides to form a human being out of the blood of another god that he had killed. And these human beings, these lowly creatures, are created for one purpose only, 
and that is to be slaves to the gods so that the gods may enjoy lives of leisure. Now that is the creation story of, for instance, the ancient Babylonian people. All the ancient people in Mesopotamia had their own gods and their own creation stories. That's, that's one of them. Now imagine, imagine that's the creation story you were raised with. What kind of world do you live in? It's violent. It's cruel. It's callous. It's brutal. It's dog-eat-dog. Human beings are only slaves uh, to their cruel gods. You see, this is why Abraham just picked Isaac up and took him up the mountain to sacrifice him. Abraham was used to this. This is what the gods did. They were violent, they were brutal, they demanded child sacrifice. Child sacrifice was a common part of ancient pagan worship. Now, I'm gonna tell you the end of that Abraham and Isaac story in a moment, but the thing that I want you to understand is that Genesis 1, you see, was not written in a vacuum. The answer to the question Remember, we said that you've got, to, you've got to ask, what kind of literature is this? And then you've also got to ask, who's the original audience? And the answer to the question of who the original audience was, the original audience of Genesis 1 wasn't 21st century people who wanted to know the science of creation. It was written to the descendants of Abraham, the ancient nation of Israel, who were surrounded by pagan cultures who worshipped cruel and barbaric deities. And you see, the Israelites... See, see, see the Israelites... Well, they already farmed cattle and, and crops and, and they knew what fish and birds were and they knew that the sun rose in the morning and that it set in the evening. They, they saw the moon and, and the stars. They didn't know how it all got there. And so the author of Genesis 1 declares that Israel's God, not the pagan gods, created the world and he created it out of nothing. And far from being a violent and cruel world, God created, the Israel's God creates the universe. And then what does he call it? What does he call it? What does he call it? He calls it, he says that it's good. And then he creates man, not out of the blood of another God that he had killed, but he creates man in his own image. And do you remember what we read in, in verse 31, what he says after he creates man? He looks at his universe, after he creates, creates humanity, and he says, it is very good. In other words, Genesis 1 was written to oppose the creation stories of the ancient cultures that, that, that were surrounding Israel. And through Genesis 1, God is giving the people of Israel in Genesis 1 a worldview that corresponds to reality. And can you see how that creation story would change the way you viewed the world compared to the creation stories of the pagan gods? Can you see that? One world is violent and, br and brutal and cruel and, uh, and humanity is, is worthless. And in another world, in God's world, at its core, the world is very good and human beings are valuable and God seeks relationship with human beings. That changes the way that you would see the world. And here's the thing. Bible historians have found that Genesis 1 contains significant similarities to the creation stories of the ancient cultures that surrounded Israel. 
And so in other words, it's possible that Genesis 1 is not a historical account of uh, scientific, uh, historical account of exactly how God created, but instead that it was a, a form of literature that was common to ancient Mesopotamian cultures that was used as a literary device to explain that Israel's God created the world, not the pagan gods of the surrounding nations. And so the truth that God created the universe is conveyed in Genesis 1 without it having to be an exact scientific account of creation. And if that's the case, then the world could be much older than young earth creationists believe it to be. And so it's not necessary. You don't have to believe in a six-day, 24-hour period of uh, creation. You don't have to believe in that. Now, look... God may have created the universe in six, 24 hour days. Or he may have done so over a longer period of time. Both are viable positions. But either way, all of us, no matter who we are, our goal should be to read this text, Genesis 1, and notice that all through Genesis 1, when God speaks, chaos becomes cosmos, disorder becomes order. And to come under God's word, to come under God's authority is to go from disorder to order from chaos to cosmos. And it should be our job simply to say, I want to come under God's word and God's authority. I want to do my very best to hear what the Bible is actually saying, right? It's not necessary that you believe, you don't have to believe that God created the world in six 24-hour days to have a high view of the Bible, to hold a biblical worldview, to believe that God created the universe, okay? Now, I'm running out of time, so just let's think very quickly, just very quickly, I want to think about some of the implications of this truth that God creates. There are many. We could talk about this uh, on end. Let me just mention a few real quickly. Number one, one implication is this, that the world didn't happen out of chance, like it's not random and impersonal and meaningless and absurd as some philosophers have concluded. God intentionally created the world for a purpose. At its core is a person who created it with a purpose. Second, your life is not random or meaningless. You were created in the image of a very good God. And so your life Every human life has value. All people are created in the image of God, and so they're all equal, equal in his image. No one is better than anyone else. No race is superior to any other race. Third, at its core, the world is not violent and cruel. It's not every man for himself. It is not survival of the fittest. But instead, at the, very, at the core of, of, of reality, is the very goodness of God reflected in creation. And then fourth, there's a moral authority who declares what is right and what is wrong. Morality is not relative, nor is it a social construct. There is a moral authority. And look, as I said, there are many, many more implications of this truth that God creates. But I really do need to close now. It's not necessary that you believe in a young earth view of creation to hold a high view of the Bible. You can, and that's a legitimate view. But it's not absolutely necessary that you believe that. There are many who believe 
that the earth was created by God, not through natural evolution, but by God over a longer period of time. And that's a legitimate view too. Let me, let me just close with this. Because I, I didn't finish the story of Abraham and Isaac, did I? Abraham marches up the mountain with his one and only son, Isaac, who is carrying the wood upon which he will be sacrificed. At the top of the mountain with Isaac strapped to the wood, Abraham raises his knife. And at the last minute, God tells him, stop, Abraham, don't, 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 don't do it. And instead, God provides a lamb for the sacrifice instead of Abraham's one and only son. Now, why, why all of this high drama? Because God was making a point. Abraham, you are used to cruel, violent gods that demand the things that are most valuable to you in order for them to be appeased. But I am different. And this whole episode ends with Abraham saying these words. This God provides. You see, long after this, many generations later, another descendant of Abraham the firstborn, only son, would carry a wooden cross to the top of a mountain called Calvary. And there, instead of demanding our firstborn, God gave his firstborn son to be sacrificed on the very wooden cross that he was strapped to so that our sins could be forgiven and so that God's wrath could be satisfied and that we could have relationship with this good God who is ultimate reality and who created the heavens and the earth. Unlike the pagan gods surrounding Israel, the God of Israel is good and he seeks relationship with his people and he provides the sacrifice necessary for that relationship. Pray with me, would you? We thank you for your word, Lord, and, and um, you know, we want to read it in the way that you intended it, and we want to be humble in the way that we approach it. We don't want to undermine it in any way, Lord. Lord, we, we come before you this morning with humble hearts, approaching Genesis 1 and the story of creation. And Lord, out of it, what we understand is that you, a good God, created the universe. And for those who are here today that maybe, maybe they grew up with this idea that you either have to believe in a young earth or, 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 or you abandon uh, a high view of scriptures, maybe you would soften some of those hearts today. And then for those that maybe grew up with that and, and you know, came to high school and college and, and then re, you know, were told that the earth is a lot older than the Bible says it is and so they need to reject the Bible and reject Christianity, perhaps, Lord, you would speak to their hearts today too and, and tell them that, that they don't have to believe in the young earth view of creation, but that the earth could be older. That there doesn't have to be this conflict between science and, and creation here in the Bible. Lord, we thank you for the, for the message, for the, the story of, of, of this Bible that tells us that there is meaning behind this universe and that at the very core of reality is you. I pray, Lord, that you would change us through that understanding. 
And thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for what you did on our behalf. And it is in your name that we worship and pray today. Amen. Amen.